This is the Journalism Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Cates. Today we're talking with Lucas Graves. He's a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. He's got a new book out called Deciding What's True, The Rise of Political Fact-Checking in American Journalism. It's published by the Columbia University Press. Welcome to the program. Thanks, James. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your your background and uh, uh, how you've come up in the world and how you ended up uh, here in Madison uh, on the faculty. Sure. So I grew up on the East Coast in Washington, D.C. I went to college uh, in Chicago at the University of Chicago in the late 80s and uh, early 90s. Uh, after that, I worked as a journalist for a couple of years in Washington, D.C., working at a policy newsletter. I was writing about welfare reform right during the peak of kind of Clinton's efforts to reform the welfare system. And then I uh, got tired of D.C., so I moved up to New York City, and I began writing for a, a number of uh, trade magazines covering technology and business uh, uh, eventually, I was freelancing quite regularly for Wired magazine. Uh, at some point, that landed me at a uh, research firm writing reports about uh, the growth of the Internet around the world. And I moved to Brazil, um, where I lived for a year, just before the Internet, uh, just before the Internet, the first Internet crash in 2001. So I found myself in Brazil uh, without a job, so I took advantage of that to kind of roam around for a few months. And then when I got back to the United States, it seemed like a great time to uh, start thinking about grad school once again. And so then I, uh, I went to Columbia uh, uh, to get my Ph.D. First I got a master's there, and then I enrolled in the, in the Ph.D. program. And uh, that's where I was until, until I came here. I got a, got a job here. In 2012, about a month, uh, I came about a month after I defended my dissertation, and uh, I've been here ever since. What sort of courses do you teach here at Madison? Uh, I teach a number of different courses, mostly focused on the sort of intersection between media and politics. So I do teach one uh, journalism skills course that's called uh, Intermediate Reporting. I think we just renamed it, but that's essentially what it what it covers. It's one of the required courses for our, uh, for undergrads who are specializing in the journalism track, uh, you know, who are majoring in, in our department, but specializing in journalism uh, as opposed to, to communications. Uh, and so it's really their first opportunity to get some hands-on reporting skills. So that's uh, kind of an intensive class that, you know, meets for four hours a week, a lot of hands-on work, uh, in addition to that, though, I teach uh, a couple of classes about the history of, um, of American journalism and of the media system and how that relates to kind of uh, U.S. political history. Uh, and I teach a large lecture course, which is called uh, Mass Communication and Society, which is kind of a, you know, a broad sociology of, of communication class. Hold on one second. Let me move this over here a little bit. There we go. That's kind of an interesting class, actually, the last mm -hmm. one that I mentioned, mm -hmm. because we, one thing that we do is look at the advent of different communications technologies and how they, you know, uh, change human relations or change the nature of 
uh, of, of political organization. And the technology that we start out with is the alphabet. So we really go uh, back to, you know, to the, the 5th century B.C. Uh, in, in ancient Greece uh, and kind of move forward from there. Now you're in an unusual cohort, I think, age-wise. You have come of age right along with the Internet and the World Wide Web. It was brand new about the time you graduated from college. You saw that first Internet boom and bust. Now you're seeing the build-out again of, of Web 2.0. So that must be a, uh, something that's always been with you. But you witnessed, uh, I think, an, an extraordinary uh, technological revolution unfolding over about the last 20 years. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, I remember that in my first job, uh, we had email accounts, but nobody used them. You certainly didn't, you know, reach out to sources by email. We still use the telephone, which I have to say was a remarkably effective uh, way to get in touch with people and set up interviews. There was a, you know, a culture that doesn't exist in the same way anymore of responding to your, you know, to your office phone, returning voicemails pretty quickly. Um, you know, my first decade as a reporter really, even though email was increasingly widely used, it still wasn't uh, kind of the main way of getting in touch with people. Uh, and that's completely changed now. Obviously, you know, uh, uh, life in any workplace has been radically transformed by the adoption of, of email and also of social media. And, uh, you know, the fact checkers who I study, in a sense, are a response to those shifts. I mean, you know, journalism develops new genres uh, in kind of uh, for each communications technology. And uh, you could argue that that political fact checking is really uh, one of the one of the first genres that responds directly to what the Internet and especially the World Wide Web made possible for journalism. We're talking with Lucas Graves. He is the author of Deciding What's True. The Rise of Political Fact-Checking in American Journalism, published by the Columbia University Press. Can you tell me, uh, you, you write a little bit in the book about you had some aha moments along the way. When you were doing your research for your dissertation at Columbia, sort of working in the, the sociology of journalism, studying how journalists work, and you, you sort of stumbled across this phenomenon of fact-checking and became fascinated by it. Can you tell us about that? Sure. You know, like a lot of people working on their dissertations in media and communication uh, about, a, you know, about a decade ago, uh, I was really interested in the relationship between journalism and blogs. Um, you know, since I, from the day I started in, in graduate school, I thought that journalists uh, were not doing a very good job of hearing what bloggers were telling them. There was a lot of debate within the profession. Uh, you know, I would see these roundtables uh, at the at the Columbia Journalism School. There was a lot of debate about uh, how newspapers or other news outlets could incorporate blogs into their work, but there wasn't really a lot of discussion about the sort of critical message that a lot of the most active bloggers were trying to send to the profession. Right, their critique of journalism and uh, of, of how it needed to change to become a little bit more open to respond to a shifting political environment, to take advantage of, uh, of the web. And so my first idea 
was to write a dissertation that, a dissertation that would focus on uh, the different way that big stories were unfolding now in an ecosystem where these bloggers were playing an increasingly active role, right? So I, you know, I had the sense really that major stories would play out differently in an, in an environment where you had suddenly these new voices analyzing, dissecting stories, responding to them, sometimes pushing journalists to, you know, to develop a story in different ways. And so I was working on a number of case studies that I thought would help to, you know, to reveal some of these shifts. And almost by accident, I, I stumbled across some of these fact-checking sites. And so I decided that, you know, I would take a trip to interview some of them, uh, because, you know, when you're writing about, about bloggers, uh, there's a lot of describing sort of what they've written, but not a lot of uh, not a lot of opportunities to see them at work. And so I was really happy to run across these organizations that seem to be really active online and that I could go visit and, and talk to in a more traditional way. And so I took a trip in late 2010, I think it was, to visit PolitiFact and factcheck.org. And, you know, on the ride home on the train uh, from, from D.C. back up to New York, I had already decided that my dissertation was not going to be about bloggers anymore. It was going to be about these fact checkers who really seem to represent a kind of hybrid of traditional journalism and blogging and who really, you know, look like something new in the world of journalism. You, uh, your book title is a, is a, is a take on a, a famous now sort of classic title called Deciding What's News by Herbert Gans, who was, was also affiliated with Columbia, uh, written a couple decades ago when journalists essentially decided what was news, what was going to get played, what was going to be on the front page, and what was going to be on the agenda. And so you, you imply here that this, is, this is, is, is a big paradigm shift, in a way, the idea of fact-checking uh, that... Uh, uh, a tectonic shift in the way journalism is being done. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, of course the title deciding what's new, deciding what's true is a kind of homage to uh, deciding what's news. But I think the difference really does capture very well uh, this important shift. It is no longer the case in, you know, 2016 that mainstream journalists working at, you know, at the biggest broadcasters and the leading newspapers uh, can effectively patrol the borders of political discourse in the way that they once did, right? Journalists no longer act as gatekeepers uh, in the way that, that they've been accustomed to acting for something like half a century. And that's a really important shift when you're thinking about uh, about the rise of political fact checking over the last over the last decade, if you ask fact checkers themselves, they'll say that they're doing what reporters have to do in a world where they no longer act as gatekeepers. Right? If you can't choose not to report on Donald Trump's wild claims about you know the president's birthplace, if you can't deny a claim like that publicity uh, because now it's going to get into the discussion no matter what you do, then suddenly your, respons your responsibility shifts and you actually have to analyze these claims 
and start to tell readers whether or not they're true, right? So you have to tackle these deceptive claims head on because you can no longer keep them out of, out of the public debate. And I think, you know, I found myself thinking, you know, you were talking about the, the old ideal of journalistic objectivity, which is you go out with your notebook or your camera, you record what you see and what you hear, you come back to the office, you relay it faithfully, and to decide whether it's true or not was not always part of the equation. I think of Joe McCarthy on the tarmac in, in Wheeling, West Virginia, waving around the list of the, the supposed communist uh, infiltrators inside the State Department, and people would simply go back and say, Joe McCarthy says there are communists in the State Department. And the, the way we do that, the responsibility somehow, you're implying, has, has shifted. You actually refer to, to, to fact-checking as a reform movement within journalism to adapt to this new sort of of, of ecosystem we have of ideas. Yeah, I think that's really true. And that was what jumped out at me from the beginning as I started spending time with fact checkers. When they're talking to each other, uh, both sort of within their organizations and at these different kinds of professional meetings that they, that they now have, you know, fact checkers, first from around the United States, but increasingly from around the world, get together, you know, at different conferences they sit on panels together. Uh, they have meetings, and I was lucky. Luck, I've been lucky, lucky enough to be able to uh, attend a lot of those conferences and to listen to their sort of, you know, private conversations, their kind of internal professional dialogue. Uh, and one refrain that you hear all of the time is that um, the job that they're doing is something that every reporter should be doing. Right? Fact checking shouldn't be limited to a special section of the newspaper or a sidebar that runs next to the to the main article. You shouldn't have to wait until the next day to discover, uh, you know, which claims at the presidential debate were false and which ones were true. Uh, so there's this really powerful critique of traditional journalism that is kind of built into the to the mission of the fact checkers. Uh, they really describe it themselves as a kind of response to what we often call he said, she said reporting, right? And that's something that, you know, is, is that critique has been around for a while in journalism. You can read articles in places like the Columbia Journalism Review or the American Journalism Review or go to, you know, professional forums going back decades where, at least, at least into the 1990s, where, uh, where reporters are saying, he said, she said, reporting isn't enough, right? There was a, a you know, a, a powerful response to, for instance, the failure of journalism to, of American journalism, to report very effectively uh, on climate change during the 1990s because uh, reporters were in the habit of, of giving equal weight to the claims of, of scientists, the overwhelming majority of scientists who said that human-caused climate change was a reality, and that small minority who, who said that it wasn't. Uh, and so I think there's been a real course correction in professional journalism as a whole, and uh, political fact-checking is one expression of that. And maybe you're about to ask about this, but I think that uh, this, is the, this is something we see repeatedly in the history of journalism, right? Going back to episodes like the 
very embarrassing coverage of McCarthy that made it possible for uh, a demagogue like that to have his claims spread so effectively. Uh, you very often see professional reporters in the United States changing the way they work, redefining objectivity in response to you know less than uh, uh, less than heroic episodes in their own history. You uh, you write of organizing the, the first international conference of fact checkers in London in uh, 2014. There must have been a really, I mean, a, a sort of an electric atmosphere there. You get this critical mass together of people who all of a sudden realize that they're doing, well, maybe they already realized it, but it's emphasized to them that they're doing something important and different and something that is really changing the mode of journalism as it's practiced, that there must have been a, a, a quite a feeling. That's really true. And I should clarify that I didn't organize that conference, but I helped to organize it. I, I gave feedback to uh, to Bill Adair, the founder of PolitiFact, who was the, the main organizer, um, and helped to kind of design the agenda uh, and see the list of attendees uh, and all of that. And it's really true that that was one of the moments when the fact checkers that I'd been talking to for, you know, for a number of years by that point, really recognized the influence that they had had, not just in the United States, but around the world. I mean, you had dozens of organizations. You have now scores of organizations around the world that very explicitly credit factcheck.org and PolitiFact and the Washington Post's fact checker for inspiring, you know, their own ventures. And you have now... Uh, you know, you have these dedicated fact-checking outlets uh, across Europe, in South America, in Asia. Uh, you have a couple in Africa. So it really is a it really is a global phenomenon. And one of the things that was most interesting was to see the American fact-checkers kind of start to take on a different role as the leaders of this global movement. Right. And to and to recognize, to think more kind of as organizers, to recognize the influence that they had had and also to think about how they could support this, you know, this wave of fact checking around the world, how they could help it continue to grow. And, you know, the the third global summit of fact checkers happened in Buenos Aires uh, last spring. And, you know, there's going to be a fourth. I think it's going to be in South Africa next year. And so this remains a very you know, a very active area uh, uh, around the world. Who are these fact-checkers? I mean, a lot of them, you, you say in your book, the majority of them have been journalists by trade for a long time, so obviously they're putting journalistic skills to work, but uh, I would think in a certain sense they have to be very careful, very meticulous. Um, you've, you had mentioned in there the the uh, the old tradition of fact checking at the New Yorker, where they would check every little detail. Back then, of course, they were checking their checking up on their own reporters. Now they're checking up on outside sources. But there's there's a certain kind of person who is good at this, who makes a career of this, being a fact checker. That's a really interesting question. I mean, one thing to note is that outside of the United States, you very often see political activists, political reformers people who work at NGOs, you know, civil society organizations that are trying to build democratic institutions, they're getting involved in fact-checking. I'm working on a report right now about 
uh, the fact-checking landscape in Europe, and a majority of the dedicated fact-checking outlets, the kind of permanent fact-checking outlets uh, across Europe, have no have no ties to a traditional news organization. So uh, for a lot of fact-checkers, this isn't, you know, uh, strictly a journalistic function, right? It's something that activists and, and institution builders can, can get involved in. In the United States, though, uh, you're absolutely right. This, has, this movement has been led by professional journalists. Uh, some of them, most of them come out of the world of political reporting. Uh, some have been investigative reporters. Uh, it's interesting to think about the kind of different corners of journalism that fact-checking overlaps with. On the one hand, you know, you're writing fact-checks in a day or maybe two. You know, sometimes a piece will take a week. Uh, uh, so you don't have months to kind of dig into something the way that an investigative reporter might. Uh, but there's still something of the spirit of investigative reporting in the sense that you're going behind political claims and, you know, trying to trying to get at the more substantial truth that might that might lie behind, you know, uh, public statistic or something like that. You it, it, this is this can be a hazardous occupation. You 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 talk about your your uh, your advisor at Columbia, Michael Shudson, who's I guess sort of our leading what would you call him, a sociologist of journalism. He studies how journalists work and how their work uh, affects the world. He talks about how journalism does not have those sort of institutional protections uh, of uh, licensing or jargon or legal protection in the way that, say, uh, a profession like law or medicine would have. And journalists are essentially, uh, uh, you can call yourself a journalist and you are a journalist which is not the case with law or medicine. And there's always the question of interpretation. I mean, unless you get, you know, you're, you're talking about an issue of, you know, was Barack Obama born in the United States, which we assume we can prove with a document, and fact-checkers, in fact, did, uh, everything's open to, to interpretation. So there's it brings uh, fact-checkers open to you know, shots from the right and the left, uh, I think probably more so from the right, that they are biased or that they are leaning one way or the other or that they tend to see things differently than people might want them to, which is, I think, always a hazard when one makes judgments. That's really true, and this is a kind of reporting that inspires an unusual degree of vitriol from the public. Fact-checkers really come under attack uh, to a far greater degree, I think, than other journalists. And, you know, most journalists are used to getting uh, hate mail now and again, maybe more than ever uh, in the age of the Internet when it's, you know, when it's quite easy for somebody to dash off a note telling a reporter uh, what they didn't like about, about their story. Fact-checkers, you know, weather this every day. Uh, they really, you know, they get, they get hate mail from both the left and the right, they sometimes say that, you know, it's one of the few corners of journalism where in a single day you can alienate both halves of your of your audience. I think the idea that you brought up of journalism as an uninsulated profession, as Michael Schutzen puts it, uh, is a really important one because it 
helps to explain why journalists traditionally have avoided contradicting the things that the people they report on say, right? It's precisely because journalists can't make any privileged claim to the truth. They're not really specialists in a way that lets them wall off their practice from critics uh, and from political attacks or lawsuits, as Gay Tuckman wrote about so, uh, you know, so convincingly in discussing journalistic objectivity. So they're always vulnerable. And I think that has guided uh, journalistic practice, at least in routine political reporting, where it was seen as, uh, you know, as safer, uh, both sort of epistemologically, but also politically, to simply relay the different claims that politicians were making about, about a particular issue. As soon as a journalist, as soon as a reporter gets into the business of deciding whether a public claim is true or not, then they're really uh, inviting attacks and they're inviting critics to question their authority and to wonder, hey, what gives this you know, reporter the right to decide that the statistic I used or the source that I used isn't valid? And that's something that, that happens every day. And there's a real tension, uh, which is fascinating when you watch, watch fact-checkers work, between, on the one hand, uh, their claim to really be offering a decisive account, right? Many of them use some kind of truth meter that, you know, declares uh, kind of formally that a claim is, you know, true or false or sometimes half true. So they're really rendering these public verdicts that are meant to be decisive. But at the same time, they admit freely that uh, people are free to disagree with their rulings and that, you know, facts in politics are not black and white and that people might read their reports and arrive at a different conclusion. So when they're challenged, they often say, well, you don't have to agree with us, but at least we've laid out the relevant evidence here. And, you know, that should be useful, even if you even if you disagree with the, the conclusion that we reached. That's why, you know, interestingly, interestingly, Fact checkers often describe this new genre as a kind of explanatory reporting, right? As a cousin of the kind of thing that sites like Vox or like the Upshot at the New York Times are doing. We've seen this tremendous uh, surge in explanatory reporting, especially online over the last decade. Uh, I don't think that term even really existed, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago. Um, and fact-checking is actually, you know, one way to make sense of fact-checking is by, by placing it in that trend. It's, it's one brand of explanatory or analytical reporting. We're talking with Lucas Graves, uh, author of the new book, Deciding What's True, The Rise of Political Fact-Checking in American Journalism, published by the Columbia University Press. We're uh, recording here in the first week of October 2016, and I, I have to ask the inevitable question, which is, how has the rise of Donald Trump messed with your mind, and I assume it has, in the, this whole equation? And when you started out, he was a sort of an, an interesting public figure. 
and now he's the Republican nominee for the presidency. And, uh, you know, there has been talk about fact-checking. He has objected to, you know, what he calls fact-checking by debate moderators. Uh, And there are, uh, I don't think it's unfair to say, followers of Donald Trump who will uh, pretty much believe him to the end. And so it certainly tells us that the fact-checking is, is, you know, doesn't, doesn't penetrate always so deeply, but also that, you know, that it, it arouses a, a certain innate skepticism, at least among certain segments of the public. And I, I wonder what's been your reaction to this. Are you surprised by this whole uh, reaction? Well, I have to say the first way that the rise of Donald Trump, the surprising success of Donald Trump, uh, in this presidential election messed with my mind is that it his rise took place uh, you know as I was putting the finishing touches on this book and had I had any idea how long he would last not only through the Republican primary uh, but now in the you know in the actual presidential race I would have rewritten various passages in the book and really, drawn attention to the sort of extraordinary phenomenon of his, you know, his unusual uh, manner of public address, his extravagant disregard for established facts, which really, uh, you know, which really doesn't even meet the already quite low bar set by uh, conventional politicians in the United States. So, I mean, it really is remarkable. I think it's an episode that underscores both the need for fact-checking and the limits of fact-checking. And again, you know, had I uh, had I had a, you know, a sort of crystal ball, I would have, uh, you know, made the opening anecdote, the first chapter of the book, focus on Donald Trump, because I think it's, it's such a useful uh, uh, kind of entry point for, for getting into the issues that fact-checking raises. Now, one of those issues, and this is something that, you know, countless uh, sort of analysts and observers have focused on over the, over the last few months, is whether fact-checking ever makes a difference. Obviously, Trump's candidacy has kind of put a, a sharper point on that question. Um, the truth is, and, you know, there are mountains of social science research that, that back up this point. Uh, the truth is that none of us is the kind of dispassionate analyst of, uh, of, you know, evidence that we like to imagine we are when we're making political judgments. Uh, this is something that, you know, that social scientists and psychologists study with controlled experiments these days, but I think it's a point that was made equally well by Walter Lippmann in, in the 1920s, right, who understood very well the uh, limits of the, the human mind in kind of making sense of a very complicated world uh, and especially of, uh, of being the kind of, you know, informed citizen uh, that that our democratic uh, model seems to you know seems to require. Um, all that said, and we can talk more about this. You know, I think it's inarguable that fact checking does make a difference, and that we're better off in a world 
where journalists are willing to make the effort to debunk absurd claims and less absurd ones uh, than we are in a world where they, where they aren't willing to do that. Now, we have fact-checking going on. The, the, the phenomenon, in fact, has been around for quite a while with politically-oriented groups on both the right and the left who will see certain biases in media, uh, uh, fairness and accuracy in reporting, for example, groups like this. Uh, is this, do you place this in the same category as journalistic fact-checkers? Are they cousins? Are they uh, uh, different manifestations of a sort of a, uh, uh, an ongoing, I guess, battle for the truth? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, when I first decided that I was interested in fact-checking, when I first started interviewing these groups, I didn't understand the distinctions that they draw among themselves. So actually the first organization that I, that I spoke to was Media Matters. And uh, when I was trying to, you know, to secure access to do the field work for my dissertation, uh, initially the group that I was most excited about was Media Matters. Now, Media Matters, you know, is a, is a kind of political war room dedicated to analyzing conservative media, especially Fox News. Uh, I visited them in, you know, in 2010. They have this really impressive headquarters with a small army of, you know, interns who spend all day and it seemed like all night uh, analyzing, you know, every single thing that's said on Fox News and then writing blog posts showing, you know, showing why, showing how Fox is lying all the time. Um, initially, I thought that, you know, all these fact checkers were basically doing the same kind of work. It turned out that the journalistic fact checkers, uh, you know, the editors at places like PolitiFact and the Washington Post's fact checker and factcheck.org, who came from long careers as professional journalists, wanted nothing to do with the, uh, the fact checkers at outlets like Media Matters or at their conservative counterparts, uh, such as a, a site called Newsbusters. Uh, at one point in, in 2011, I was helping to organize a conference, uh, kind of a, you know, a 50-person day-long conference that would, uh, you know, where, where scholars and practitioners would talk about fact-checking. And we wanted to invite, initially, Media Matters, uh, but it turned out that the, you know, the journalists in the room didn't think they should be invited because they thought that the event would take on a sort of partisan cast so there's a lot of what you know uh, sociologists like to call boundary work that takes place in the fact-checking world uh, as as the professional journalists, as nonpartisan fact-checkers seek constantly to kind of distinguish themselves from these these more partisan outlets. I will say that you know over the years that I've spent studying fact-checkers, uh, I've come to think that those differences really do matter. I mean, in some cases, Media Matters does uh, does really excellent work. You know, I think they in particular uh, uh, often offer these really rigorous, well-researched fact checks of conservative claims that are indistinguishable in terms of the sources they cite from the work that nonpartisan outlets are doing. Uh, but all of it is offered 
you know, through a kind of ideological lens, and they're, uh, you know, they're never checking claims from uh, from the left. And, you know, I've come to think that that actually matters. I mean, uh, the effort to be objective means in part being willing to investigate claims from across the political spectrum and being willing to approach to approach every claim with an open mind, right? Every once in a while, Donald Trump says something that's true. It seems to happen uh, even less often than it does with other politicians, but it does happen. And if you're going to be a good fact checker, you have to be, uh, you know, you have to be ready to, to recognize that and, and to forget who the speaker is when you start to analyze the claim. Now, fact checkers don't do that perfectly, and obviously some political figures like Trump or before him, like, you know, like Michelle Bachman, uh, some political figures manage to, uh, you know, to build up these really atrocious, atrocious records uh, because they seem to have an unusual disregard for the truth. And fact checkers, uh, you know, are aware of that. And you can see it echoed in their, in their writing sometimes. I mean, they'll, uh, you know, they'll have a little bit of fun with these kind of uh, really serial dissemblers uh, sometimes in their, in their articles. But at the same time, I think they make a genuine effort to approach questions with an open mind uh, and to put aside you know, any, any partisan biases. Uh, and I think that makes a difference. Um, a question that always has to be asked, especially now that, that the, the, the traditional media business model is under great assault and the, the media landscape is kind of crumbling, where does the money come from? Who pays these people? Uh, uh, some of them are on the payrolls of established news organizations, uh, private foundations, you mentioned NGOs. Uh, how far can we go in terms of funding before we start, uh, you know, getting the idea that people are supposed to come up with preconceived answers based on where their money comes from? Look, the, the problem that we face in adequately funding fact-checking is the same problem, essentially, that we face in finding the resources to support the daily reporting uh, that that democratic self-governance requires, the investigative journalism that uh, public accountability requires. So it's essentially the same problem, right, with the breakdown of the traditional advertising model. Uh, journalists, you know, journalism of many different stripes is finding it uh, is finding it difficult to to uh, secure the kind of funding you need to uh, to make it a you know a sustainable self-sustaining enterprise. Fact checkers are actually in a slightly better position, I think, than some of their peers, simply because uh, this is one of those cases where you know a useful style of journalism also happens to be a popular style of journalism. So at least in comparison with, you know, other articles that really delve into the nitty-gritty of, of public policy, fact-checking manages to draw, uh, you know, a lot of eyeballs, again, relatively speaking. Uh, and I think that's because, you know, people are drawn to conflict, 
People want to see their uh, beliefs confirmed. Uh, but, you know, fact-checking is a kind of clickbait, at least, again, within the, you know, the universe of, of political reporting. Um, that said, though, it's an expensive kind of journalism. These pieces take a lot of time uh, to research. It can be surprising uh, how complicated even simple questions turn out to be, how many experts you need to talk to to settle a debate about you know, unemployment or tax rates, how many different points of view there are out there. So sometimes these pieces will take you know, one reporter a day or two days, sometimes a week to write, uh, and, and you know, that costs money. So one model that we see is traditional news organizations uh, moving into the fact-checking world. Uh, so PolitiFact is a project, for instance, of the, the you know, what used to be the St. Petersburg Times, now the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, but this is an area where we've seen an unusual amount of foundation support as well. So uh, factcheck.org lives at the University of Pennsylvania. Factcheck.org is staffed by professional journalists with, you know, with long careers in journalism, but it lives at this university and it's funded essentially by the Annenberg Foundation as well as, as, well as support from other foundations and, uh, and from you know, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding campaigns. Um, and around the world, you see even more reliance on, uh, on support from NGOs and from the kind of global foundations that NGOs rely on to, to do their work. As part of drawing an audience, sometimes the, the fact-checkers have to play, portray things in maybe somewhat starker relief than they might like. I'm, I'm thinking of politic, PolitiFact, which is a, sort of a syndicated service. They license themselves uh, for other organizations to use the format uh, here in Wisconsin, for example, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel runs them. And there's a meter, everything from absolutely true to pants on fire. You know, sh the graphic showing a little uh, pair of flaming pants. And uh, I, another one you had mentioned, it used a, a, I love this, uh, a Pinocchio figure with a growing nose. And uh, you know, I can't help but think of, you know, Siskel and Ebert with a thumbs up or thumbs down. And I think, well, sometimes the world is a little more complicated than that, but... It does, draw, as you say, help draw eyeballs. That's true, and this is a really significant debate within the fact-checking world. Uh, you know, fact-checkers disagree about whether or not using meters is a good idea. The majority of these organizations around the world uh, do use some kind of truth meter, although there, there are different kinds of truth meters. You know, groups like PolitiFact... Uh, really use an ordinal scale, right? So they're kind of rating degrees of truth. PolitiFact's scale has six points, uh, you know, six settings, and it, it runs, the truth meter runs from true, as you said, to, to pants on fire. The Washington Post's Pinocchio scale, uh, you can earn anything from one to four Pinocchios. It's not actually a question of Pinocchio's nose growing. They decided to, you know, they just tally up the Pinocchios. There's also a Geppetto checkmark for claims that turn out to be true, although apparently those aren't handed out very often. 
because uh, as Glenn Kessler, who's the, the reporter at The Post who works on this, told me, he just doesn't have the time to investigate true claims when there's so many uh, false ones out there. So most dedicated fact-checking organizations around the world do use some kind of, some kind of truth meter, but some of them don't. Factcheck.org has, uh, this is the, the first dedicated fact-checking outlet in the United States. They were founded in 2003, and for a long time they took a sort of principled stand against using any sort of truth meter for exactly the reasons that you suggest, right? It obviously is reductive. Uh, it might lead to people thinking that a, a question has been really solidly settled uh, when, you know, when really what's needed is nuance and analysis and explanation. Um, so factcheck.org would publish, you know, the thousand word analysis without reaching any sort of simple black and white verdict. Now, the counter argument that groups like PolitiFact make is that they're doing both things, right? They, they do have the ruling that they reach on, you know, with their truth meter that's eminently quotable and citable, so it helps their work to spread really widely around the web. And I think, honestly, that's the biggest advantage of using a meter and, uh, you know, a pretty legitimate rationale for it, right? You want this work to make a difference. Uh, it's going to spread, you know, your work is going to spread, your rulings are going to spread a lot more widely if they're quoted by mainstream journalists, if they're easy to cite, and reaching a definitive uh, ruling with something like, you know, like Pinocchio's or like the Truth Meter, that helps to that helps this work to have a have a bigger impact. So they'll say, on the one hand, they reach that decisive ruling, but they also, when you click through the article, have, you know, the thousand or two thousand words of analysis that FactCheck.org has. Uh, so it's a difficult question. Uh, you know, I understand the argument for attaching these these ratings to uh, to these articles, even though it is invariably reductive. Lucas Graves, I want to thank you very much for taking time to talk with us today. Uh, Professor Graves is the author of Deciding What's True, The Rise of Political Fact-Checking in American Journalism, published by the Columbia University Press. And just to, to, to kind of wind it down... Uh, I, I want to ask you about your, your research agenda now. You've been here at Madison for about five years. And if nothing else, the, the, just the, the events, the, the, the sheer uh, uh, carnival of the 2016 campaign must be really setting off all sorts of ideas for you. As far as your, your future research agenda, you must be thinking, well, I've I got to spin out an article about Trump or, uh, you know, the, the whole fact-checking phenomenon in the debate. So, so what comes next? What questions do you ask now? So lately I've really been turning my attention to the growth of fact-checking worldwide. Uh, the book, Deciding What's True, is focused on kind of the history and practice of political fact-checking in the United States. But as I mentioned, uh, this is really kind of an extraordinary global phenomenon. I mean, I, I can't think of another case in which we've seen a new, you know, journalistic practice, a new media practice spread so quickly through these really visible networks uh, all around the world. 
And what's fascinating about that is that it gives us uh, a kind of new approach to comparative media studies, right? So it gives us uh, a new angle for thinking about what differentiates French journalism from British journalism, from American journalism, from Brazilian journalism, right? You can see how reporters uh, and also activists and, and you know, uh, and NGOs, et cetera, uh, but how reporters in different journalistic traditions and in different uh, media markets and, and political environments, how they take up this common practice. Uh, and so that's what I've been focused on. That's, that's really, uh, I think it's a fascinating area of study. But you're right. Uh, you know, this 2016 race uh, is making me think that I'm not going to get away from fact-checking for, uh, for the foreseeable future. <laughs> we may have another edition down the road. Right, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and to finish up, to, to look back a few years, you did uh, uh, have another pu- publication with Columbia University assessing the state of the digital media business. It was called The Story So Far. Now, that was published in 2011, when, you know, there was, as there still is, a lot of concern about the, the, the business model of journalism, how it transfers or, or doesn't transfer to digital, who builds the new one, and how it supports, in particular, serious journalism, the, the kind of journalism that looks uh, primarily at government and at big public institutions like business and uh, reports in depth what people need to know in order to govern themselves and to lead their lives well. Uh, what what's your your take on the story so far at this point? Are, are you optimistic about the future of media? You know, it's a really difficult question in the sense that this really is, not to use a terrible cliche, both the best and the worst of times for uh, accountability reporting. On the one hand, we have extraordinary work being done by the organizations uh that are finding ways to be successful in the, you know, the new economy of, uh, of the media organizations like the New York times, uh, or like the BBC in the UK, you know, these journalistic standard bearers are really using the internet in extraordinary ways, both to conduct research, but also, uh, to present their work. Right. And we've seen entirely new, uh, kind of strands of journalism, like data journalism, uh, developed over the last decade. That obviously they they build on you know precursors in 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 journalism, uh, but they really push the practice in new directions. Also, like fact checking, uh, by taking advantage of you know of the new media world. At the same time, uh, what we need for you know for effective self government is regular routine reporting on uh, political actors, not just at the national level, not just in state capitals, but, you know, in cities and towns around the country. We need reporters at school board meetings. Uh, and and that kind of journalism is in more peril uh, than ever. And I would argue that since we wrote that, you know, the story so far six years ago, uh, you know, a couple of worrying trends have emerged. One is uh, the increasing role that social media and especially Facebook uh, play in the ability of journalists to draw audiences for their work. And I think there's a really legitimate fear today 
that uh, you know that Facebook is becoming kind of the uh, obligatory passage point for anyone who wants to be you know who wants to, to draw meaningful audiences today, and that's dangerous because that's a that's a private network that uh, that we're having difficult difficulty holding accountable in the ways in the ways that we need to. Another important development we've seen is the uh, kind of continued expansion of foundation-funded investigative journalism operations. We have one here at the University of Wisconsin, which is, you know, uh, does incredibly impressive work, the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, but we have these around the country. On the one hand, that's a really hopeful development because it speaks to the fact that uh, journalists see and some funders see that we really need this kind of journalism. Uh, uh, but it, it also speaks to a world where, you know, regular local newspapers aren't doing that kind of work. And uh, I think it's, a, you know, it's really unfortunate if we see, uh, you know, reporters with conventional ad-supported media organizations give up on essentially abandon accountability reporting and investigative reporting. Lucas Graves, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Professor Graves is the author of Deciding What's True, The Rise of Political Fact-Checking in American Journalism, published by the Columbia University Press. We will look forward to reading more of your work and uh, perhaps hearing from you again in the future. Thanks. It's been great to talk to you. This is the New Books Network, uh, the Journalism Channel. I'm James Cates.